Desalination used to be the preserve of the money-rich but water-poor Middle Eastern countries. It was expensive and polluting, but in the arid desert climates where rain is scarce, there was little choice. Without desalination, taps across the Gulf would run dry, farms would wither and die. Experts have issued warnings about water wars of the future as one of the world's most precious resources runs short. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young. And this week, we're looking at how Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Israel and the Gulf started a water revolution and how desalination can quench the world's water worries. Before we start... If you could subscribe to Beyond the Headlines in your podcasting app, it makes a big difference. Desalination is the process of taking sea or otherwise undrinkable water and essentially cleaning it so that it can nourish our crops and be piped into our kitchens and homes. There are two main ways of doing this. Here's Professor Chris Sansom, head of Renewable Energy Centre at the Cranfield University in the UK. The history of desalination began with the thermal evaporation of seawater, literally heating seawater till it boils, uh, and then uh, distilling it, uh, recondensing it to uh, provide drinking water, pure water in that case, pure H2O. But uh, on an industrial scale or commercial level scale, then the uh, what we call the reverse osmosis process, where you force seawater through. Uh, semi-permeable membranes has become the norm, if you like. That has become the main high-scale, large-scale desalination process for uh, uh, countries like the Middle Eastern countries and and so on. But there are other ways in which you can desalinate uh, or provide drinking water, as well as reverse osmosis. There are now other ways in which we can evaporate seawater more efficiently and in a more in a greener way, a low carbon, zero carbon way. Uh, And also you can uh, extract water from humid air, for example, as well. So there are other ways it can be done. But why do we need it? Well, in some regions and in some countries, there is plenty of water in the rivers, lakes and in rainfall to farm, drink and use. But places like Saudi Arabia, which has very little rainfall, do not. Instead, for years, the kingdom has relied on underground aquifers. That's ancient water trapped in the rocks underground that could be 10 to 30,000 years old. The issue is that if you're taking water from the ground that you can't replenish with rainfall, then it quickly becomes a finite resource. One day, you'll simply run out. And that's already happening. There was an agricultural boom in the 1980s, leading to a massive increase in the water pumped from the ground. By 1994, many of the above-ground springs fed from these reserves had simply stopped flowing as the water table had dropped. Here's Nizar Kamuri, CEO of Sawako Water Desalination, one of Saudi Arabia's leading desalination companies. We call it fossil water. It's water that's not really renewable and it's one-time use. Till now, there is restrictions on extracting brackish water from non-renewable sources, but this does not mean there are no desalination plants in in Riyadh or in Saudi Arabia that use this precious resource. Eventually, seawater desalination will give answer, will give enough water to stop or reduce tapping on the groundwater resources. This is, I'm talking in Saudi Arabia. 
If you go outside Saudi Arabia, then this problem is not a problem. It's not an issue because groundwater could be replenished uh, if you have the right amount of rainfall. In India, for example, they have a problem. It rains, but at the same time, brackish water uh, wells, groundwater is being depleted at a faster rate than uh, replenishment by rain. But here in Saudi Arabia, there is no rain practically in, in the area of Riyadh. And the replenishment is very rare and very small. So you're really tapping on uh, non-renewable resource. But of course, seawater will, uh, will provide the answer. So experts sounded the alarm. And it's not just in Saudi Arabia. The UAE, Yemen, Oman, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, and even up to Iraq, Jordan, and even Syria are all fed from the same aquifer. And 12 of the 17 countries facing extremely high water stress are in the Middle East and North Africa. But it's the case elsewhere too. California has faced a years-long drought, leaving water incredibly scarce. Southern Europe, too, is outstripping supply of water. Island nations might be surrounded by water, but if they can't drink or farm with it, then they have a problem. Without water, people will die, economies shrink, and food cannot grow. Entire countries would ground to a halt. Israel can be seen as a real desalination success story. In the 1990s and early 2000s, Israel was facing the reality of running out of water amid one of the worst droughts in over a century. Today, though, it runs a water surplus, and 80% of its domestic consumption comes from desalinated water. So why doesn't everybody just desalinate water? Well, for a long time, it's just been too expensive and energy-intensive. Here's Professor Sansom again. It's taken a long time to become a commercially viable process, simply because no matter how you do it, no matter how you desalinate salty water, it requires a lot of energy, and energy is expensive. And whether you're forcing the seawater through those semi-permeable membranes, which require massive pumps and fans that consume vast amounts of energy, as well as the membranes themselves, which have a, a limited lifetime and have to be replaced on a regular basis, or whether you're evaporating, simply boiling seawater requires a massive amount of energy. You think about boiling a kettle, um, well, all we, you, know, you say, well, maybe it doesn't take too much energy to boil a kettle, kilowatt maybe to boil a kettle, two kilowatts, but you've got to boil that kettle dry in order to completely evaporate all of that water and then and then recondense it somehow as well, cool it somehow with fans. So it's a massive amount of energy that's taken, and that is expensive. And that is what has always been the, the barrier to large-scale desalination, the sheer cost of it. That said, there are something like 21,000 desalination plants operating in 177 countries around the world. The biggest is in Saudi Arabia's Ras al-Hair, able to produce 1.4 million cubic metres of water a day. It's about enough for 10 million people. The other barrier to widespread adoption is environmental impact. Taking so much energy is one of the reasons that the biggest adopters were the world's oil producers. Although there have been several attempts to use heat and energy from nuclear fusion reactors to desalinate water, as well as some other methods, most desalination has relied on fossil fuels. 
Desalination already spews out 76 million tonnes of CO2 every year. And those emissions are expected to grow to 218 million tonnes by 2040, unless there is swift action. That data is from the Abu Dhabi Sustainability Initiative, Mazda. The irony of using fossil fuels to solve a water shortage problem that will likely be made worse by climate change caused by the burning of fossil fuels is not lost on anybody. Improving cost and efficiency whilst using new power sources is the central question for desalination in the future. The biggest development is the uh, power consumption, reducing power consumption. The, the cost of electricity is the largest individual cost in uh, production of water using desalination. So the, the, over the last 10 years, we've seen the, water, uh, the power consumption dropping from the vicinity of 7, 8 kilowatt hour per cubic meters down to 2.5 kilowatt hour per cubic meter. Also, the second most important development that happened is what we call the higher recovery plants, where we produce more potable water from the same quantity of salt water. 10 years ago, the average water recovery was around 30 to 35%, and now we're seeing 45 and 50 and even 60%. And uh, this is coupled with what we call uh, the advancement of something called the high recovery membranes that make this possible. That was Mr. Kamori. In 1960, it cost $10 to desalinate about one cubic metre of water, about the average person's weekly consumption. Today, it can cost 50 cents or even less per cubic metre. In the UAE, they reached the incredible uh, $0.35 per per cubic metre, which is insane, which was impossible a few years ago. In Israel, the cost of desalination today is about a third of the price it was in the 1990s. A lot of this is to do with better, more efficient processes because of the investments led by the likes of Israel, the UAE and Saudi Arabia. In the future, both the financial and environmental cost will be much, much lower. The main reason is renewables. Here's Professor Sansom. I think that depends on your climate. I think certainly in uh, countries that tend to be the most water stressed are often dry and humid. So uh, you have uh, the opportunity for using the strong direct sunlight, which is, which is what's made the, the land dry in the first place. So the two do go very well together. So solar energy and desalination do go really well together. Uh, they're usually hot, sunny countries who can make good use of solar energy. So that's the obvious uh, That's the obvious way to do it. I haven't seen any plans for any desalination plants that run on geothermal, hydro, even wind because of its variability, or indeed any other renewable source either. So I think the the obvious choice for countries that tend to be water-stressed because of strong sunlight is, is solar energy. Why aren't countries like Saudi Arabia, where there's a lot of sun, already using photovoltaic or direct heat solar power? It's certainly been looked at. Um, certainly in Saudi Arabia, for example, um, there were plans, um, there are still are plans to replace the large oil-powered RO plants with concentrating solar or solar PV or a combination of those or a combination of all renewables. But they are such vast plants and it's very difficult to, uh, to retrofit and to, to, to change it. So you'd have to build new plants. And as I said before, um, it, it's very, very expensive. So 
Uh, I think that will happen, but I think it will happen uh, slowly because they, they, they build such large plants in those countries. But Saudi Arabia is currently looking at developing an entirely new way of desalinating water. The kingdom's planned futuristic desert metropolis of Neom will have a solar dome. In the middle of this new desalination plant is a giant dome about 25 metres tall over a cauldron that drops 25 metres into the earth. The glass and steel structure will then be heated using concentrated solar power from an array of over 100 solar reflectors all around the base that focuses the sun's rays into the dome. It's a new concept, but the technology, or similar concepts, have already been used in other settings. Concentrated solar power to heat water into steam has been tried as a way of powering turbines to create green energy. The solar dome is just one of several suggestions for new tech. One idea is condensing moisture from humid climates. Professor Sansom says that this could work, but it's too early to tell whether the tech will hold up. So I think extracting moisture from humid air is, is clearly um, a niche process. It does require high humidity, so you're already limited to climates where you have very hot, humid weather. But they tend to be countries where, which are water-stressed, so that, that is good. There is a match uh, there. A number of people have looked at it from an academic point of view, a theoretical point of view, uh, and have done small lab-scale demonstrations. And Cranfield is doing one itself at the moment. Uh, we're doing a, a, an investigation and building a prototype of, uh, of such a small, a small-scale prototype of such a system. Again, you find you need a lot of energy, so it can become expensive. So it's got the same issues, if you like. Uh, which one is the most efficient? Probably too early to say. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. As well as desalinating seawater, there is another abundant source of water that we could put through the same cleaning systems, reclaimed sewage water. It's a feasible option if we can overcome our squeamishness. Today, uh, I personally work on many projects. We take this uh, wastewater, water that comes straight from toilets and what have you, and you can turn them into drinking level, but nobody will drink this water. One way is you take this wastewater, you treat it to what we call reuse level, and you inject it in the, in the ground again to replenish the water that you're using for uh, brackish water desalination. This is one way of offsetting the loss of water of fossil water. So both seawater desalination and water reuse can eventually stop depletion of valuable brackish water sources. So no, uh, reuse water is perfectly fine for drinking. I gave example in Saudi Arabia once in one of our plants, and I took a glass of water from a tank in, in a project called Nisk Project, and I drank it, and I was on newspaper uh, and a local newspaper they took four or five photos of me but of course people are not ready for this so we can take the reuse water level and inject it in the ground to uh, supplement the volume of water that being pumped to produce drinking water but yes it can be it, you, it can be drunk uh, it, it can be drunk there is no harm with it with the right processes uh, it's, it's as safe as normal potable water. 
Ultimately, however, both Professor Sansom and Mr. Kamori say that whilst desalination can be a vital element, things like reducing water consumption is really important to water management. Professor Sansom says that we need to rethink how we treat water as a resource and how desalination fits into that. Uh, Without doubt, the biggest hurdle is cost. It always surprises me that despite the fact that we're so desperate for water, uh, drinking water and water for agriculture in water-stressed countries, it always surprises me how important the price of water, the cost of water seems to be. Uh, If you have no water at all, I would have thought you would be prepared to pay a little bit more. But we've got ourselves into this mindset, I think, which is hard to get out of, that water is uh, almost free. Uh, but water is very cheap, and uh, um, it isn't, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, what, the, the limited amount that we have circulating at any particular time uh, through the world, through the cloud, rain, river system, it's free, effectively. But when you when you start to interfere with nature and to extract drinking potable uh, water for agriculture from other, other sources, salty sources, then, uh, then I'm afraid it, it gets expensive. And I think we haven't quite yet got to the point where we've, we've accepted that that is something that is, we're going to have to pay more for our water in, the, in some countries and probably across the world. In the last few decades, the cost and impact of desalination has come down dramatically. No longer is it just rich Gulf states engaging in industrial level water desalination. Also, individual US states as well as middle and even some low-income countries, are now getting in on the action. But will desalination be a solution to some of the poorest nations on the planet? Here is Mr. Kamori. We've seen more permitting nowadays than before. I'm not saying it's easier. Places like uh, Spain now, desalination is is an important... But Spain is not a poor country. I'm telling you that more and more countries are adopting it. Also, countries with, uh, how can I say, compromised finances like Pakistan, they're considering desalinations. India is already uh, in the desalination uh, circle of nations that, that adopted it. Latin America, we've seen also places like uh, Peru, Argentina, and, uh, and other places, Chile in, in mines, adopting desalination as well. So it, it is, it's spreading. In Africa as well, in certain areas, Tunisia, Egypt, countries with, as I said, with uh, financial difficulties, but finally they decided that this is, it's time now they adopt desalination. It's no more that super expensive process. It's expensive, but uh, it's becoming more and more affordable. Thanks this week to Niza Kamori and to Professor Chris Sansom. We were produced this week by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. If you like the podcast and want to get all the latest beyond the headlines, go to your podcast app and hit subscribe. And if you can leave us a review while you're there, that can really help.